Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I invite you to um, take one of the Bibles that's in the seat in front of you, in the, in the little seat basket in front of you. And I wanted to offer up a little object lesson this morning that um, is not original to me. As I was studying the passage this week, came across another pastor who used this illustration. And so I'm going to use it this morning regarding this text. Now, I have this in my hand, and let me see if I can get someone to tell me what this is. What is that? Sandpaper. What is sandpaper used for? Let's see if any of the kids in here know what sandpaper is used for. Tell we don't have a lot of handy dads in the congregation because the kids are saying, well, I don't have no idea. What's sandpaper used for? Okay, so you, maybe you take a, a block of wood that has some rough edges and you rub it with the sandpaper, even though the sandpaper is harsh and scratchy, it, it smooths down the wood, right? Any other uses for sandpaper? Rowan, I can't wait to hear this one. Put it in the sandbox, that's right. You know, that's great, Rowan. I can always count on a great response from Rowan. You know, I've never tried that, Rowan, but it may not be too fun wallowing around in a box full of sandpaper. But, you know, it's a good thought. You know, another use for sandpaper that really is um, the, part of the reason this illustration connected with me when I ran across it was something that I just finished yesterday, and that was a project in our guest bedroom where we were repainting the room. You see, we had gone to Lowe's a few weeks back and bought some paneling that we put, you know, put this chair rail and some paneling on the bottom half of the wall. And when I was at Lowe's, I asked them, can you just paint over this paneling? And of course, Lowe's, being the home improvement experts, said, yes, absolutely, it's ready to paint. You just paint right over it. And I said, well, it's kind of got this slick surface on it. Are you sure you can just paint on it? And they said, absolutely, it's ready to paint. So we came home, we put the paneling up, attached it to the walls and everything else, and then out came the paint and wouldn't you know it, the paint at first began to kind of bead up. And then as you were finally kind of able to get it to spread, and if, once it dried, you could just take your fingernail and scrape it. It would just peel right off. The home improvement expert turned out not to be such an expert. It didn't work at all. Now, thankfully, my father-in-law was in town because I'm not handy either. He was in town a few weeks ago, and so he took some sandpaper, much like this sandpaper... And went over to a section of the paneling and began to scrape that paneling. Now, no longer was it nice and smooth. Now it had little scratches on it. And he began to scratch it down. And then he painted over that section of the paneling. And, of course, wouldn't you know it, we went back and tried to scrape that off with your fingernail. And it, it wouldn't come off. It didn't beat up in the first place. And then it wouldn't come off. It, it stuck. It stayed there. But in order to make the paint stick to that wall, it needed the rough application of this sandpaper. Now, as we read today's text, and we think about what John the Baptist is preaching about here, I want us to kind of keep this in mind, this illustration. And I'll come back to it several times throughout the message. But John's message is not a smooth message. It is a rough message. But it's a message that's absolutely needed in order for the gospel message to be heard properly. So, if you're in Luke... We're going to begin in chapter 3, verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. As I've said other times, it's no different as if, as if Jesus were right here speaking to us in person. He is speaking to us in person through the written word of God. 
Verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added, to this, added this to them all, that he locked up John in the prison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel the weight of this passage, and I feel the weight of the message that you've laid upon my heart as we walk through this passage. And Lord, I pray that you would Give me the right words to say and keep me from error. Lord, I pray that we would not only be a church of expository preaching, but that we would be a church of expository listening. So give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And Lord, cut us to the heart and cause us to repent of anything for which we need to repent. We pray in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. 
We're continuing with our series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. The aim of this series is to walk through the life of Christ chronologically through the Gospels and see Christ more fully and therefore worship Him more rightly. Our desire at Harbin's is to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. And the way we go about doing that, what will equip us for that, is to have a right view of who Christ is. And so our aim is to walk through the Gospels, to see Him more fully, to see Him more rightly, to magnify His name, and to joyfully worship Him more rightly. Now, y'all may have watched some of the Olympics over the past few weeks, or past week, really. It's only been on for a little over a week. And perhaps you watched the opening ceremonies with all the pageantry and everything else that happened during the opening ceremonies. Quite honestly, I don't think these opening ceremonies were nearly as impressive as the previous Olympics. But these opening ceremonies, they have all the pageantry. And then the main attraction, if you will, or the climax before the, the, the torch comes in, is, is the procession of the athletes. They bring the athletes in because they are the main protagonists. They are the ones that this whole event is all about. They're the ones that are going to take center stage from this point forward. And so there's this grand procession to announce the entrance of the athletes. And so in this text here, we have a man who has been given the task of announcing the arrival and preparing the way for the King of Kings, for Jesus. Now how would we choreograph the entrance of Jesus onto the, onto the stage? Now he's already come, we've already seen the, the birth narratives, but now his, his ministry begins, his earthly gospel ministry begins his teaching ministry at age 30. And so uh, how would you choreograph the beginning of this, if you were John? How would you script it? Well, as I mentioned, John's the one who's been chosen to announce the entrance of the king, to be the forerunner, to be a herald, to prepare the people. He had a unique role in history. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he's also the first preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His ministry culminates the ministry of the prophets who foretold of Christ, and his ministry inaugurates the ministry of the gospel work of Jesus Christ. So if we could have written the script, how would we have written it? I'm not sure, I know for sure, we wouldn't have written it the way God wrote it. First of all, the timing. I mean, Luke goes out of his way to give us a list of all these characters who were in leadership at the time of John's, the beginning of John's ministry. And it's really a laundry list of some pretty corrupt people. It's sort of like the hall of depravity. These, all these people are just horrible leaders that were corrupt to the core. And so it's during this time of really dark political turmoil that, that God decides to bring his herald onto the scene to announce the, the son, to prepare the people for the son. But not just a time of political turmoil. Also, there's a couple of other names on there, Anna and Caiaphas, who were also very corrupt high priest during that time. So spiritually, religiously, as well as politically, it was a time of great darkness. It was a time of great corruption. Yet God's timing is to bring his son onto the stage during such a time of darkness. And also the person whom God chooses to be the messenger. Let's face it. John the Baptist is just weird. He is. Um, he's very much contrasted to these high and mighty elites 
of the political sphere and of the religious sphere. He's, he's not dressed in splendid clothes. He doesn't live in the luxury of the king's courts. No, his first base of operation is the desert, out in the wilderness. And secondly, the other Gospels fill us in with some details of what he looked like and, and what he ate. Mark and Matthew tell us that he wore camel's hair and a leather belt. Now you think, some of you out there think we dress down at Harbin's. John the Baptist really dressed down, camel's hair and a belt. So he's, he's this weird guy out in the middle of nowhere, dressed strange. And on top of that, he had a very interesting diet. The other gospel writers tell us that he um, ate locusts and wild honey. Now I know some of you out there eat some strange things. We have homeschool families here. They make their own butter and stuff. You guys eat some strange things out there. But this guy really was strange. He ate locusts and wild honey. And I have no idea if locust is gluten-free or not. I really don't. But he ate locusts and wild honey. He was dressed strange. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And this is the herald that God has chosen to prepare the way I was watching one little clip. Um, they, you know, half the Olympic coverage isn't sports. It's all these little vignettes, these stories of these athletes or stories of things that's going on in England. And one of these little stories was of these guys who their job is to announce things at the Queen's Court. So they come out and they announce things. They're heralds, basically. And they go through a lot of training. They have to have the right kind of voice and the right kind of posture. And they wear these fancy clothes. And that's what you would expect for someone who's announcing a king. But not John. Camel's hair, locusts, wild honey, and in the middle of nowhere. So the timing is dark, the person is weird, and the message is harsh. The message, the main focus of John's message was a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was the heart of John's message. Repentance is not a popular message today. Churches don't attract lots of visitors by putting up, hey, this, week's, this month's series is repentance. It's not a popular message today. But both then and now, repentance is the pavement on the road for the king. Repentance prepares the heart for the king. It's like this sandpaper. It's a harsh message. But it's an absolutely necessary message to prepare, to prepare the heart for the coming of the king. It says in verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was calling on people to be baptized as a symbolic gesture of their turning away from sin and appealing to God for forgiveness and being immersed into God's people. This was the meat of his message. Luke quotes Isaiah 40, as do the other gospel writers, as a prophetic word about John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The symbolism here is rich. His ministry of repentance is preparing the road that the king is going to come in on. 
The saving work of the Messiah is paved by a message of brokenness and tears and repentance. The imagery here of mountains being made low and crooked paths becoming straight and rough places becoming level represents haughty hearts being humbled, wayward lives being corrected, and rebellious hearts returning to the king. And they're insurmountable for us. But with Jesus, there's a way. I want us to make four observations today. We're going to talk about repentance. Four observations from this text about true repentance. What did John's message of repentance look like? And what does it still look like for us today? And so the first point in your notes there is true repentance can only come when we see our sinful condition. True repentance can only come when we see our sinful condition. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How's that for an opening to a sermon? You snakes. It's good to have you with us this morning. You nasty snakes. How'd you slither out here? kind of a rough opening. Most of your preaching professors would tell you, you know, you got to have an engaging story, some sort of engaging illustration, but not John. He gets right to the point. Not exactly seeker sensitive. And we don't like messages like this, especially today. What was he doing calling them a brood of vipers? Well, he was helping them to see who they really were and how deadly their position really was. He was revealing their heritage. He's revealing our heritage. Namely, that apart from the forgiving, life-giving work of Jesus Christ, we are children of Satan. This harkens everyone's hearts back to Genesis 3.15. All the Jews who were listening to him, they know who the serpent is. And when he calls them a brood of vipers, he know, they know what he's referring to. To that original snake in the garden. And we read in Genesis 3.15 of two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we did a whole series called the Jesus Tribe where we talked about the Jesus Tribe and the serpent tribe. And Luke is saying that John, as he looks here at his listeners, he is telling them, you are children of Satan. Now in order for us to understand our need for repentance, we too must understand who we are. And it's a painful message. That sandpaper is rough. Ouch. You brood of vipers. You children of Satan. Ow, John. Man. I invited my friend to come out and hear you this weekend. You start that way? Come on, John. Man, go a little easy on us. But John knows what the heart needs. It needs the rough truth. John doesn't come out and just say, you know, I know some of you guys out there are having a rough week. And I just want everything to be better for you. And so let me give you some nuggets of biblical truth that will help you through your week. Let me give you some shock absorbers for the rough road of life. No. That's a deadly message when people don't understand who they are. He gives them the harsh reality that in your sins you are children of Satan. 
Now, Matthew focuses these words on the Pharisees, but Luke gives them a general application, and both are true. The Pharisees perhaps were the most poisonous of all the vipers that were out there, but the Scriptures make it clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My friends, the Scriptures are so clear. We are born in sin. We inherit a sinful nature. We are born in rebellion, part of the enemy's army. We are born into slavery, shackled by sin. We are born as children of wrath, children of Satan. As one preacher said, we are monsters of iniquity. Apart from Christ, we are helpless. And that is bad news. But that's the truth. And that's hard to hear. But that's what they needed to hear. And that's what people need to hear today in order to repent properly. We live in a culture that doesn't like this type of a message. We live in a culture that wants to get as Isaiah says, smooth words. Give me smooth words, pastor. Not rough words. Just give me some smooth words. I've already had a rough week at work. My boss was mean to me this week. Just, I just come here and I just want something smooth. We live in a culture that says feeling guilty is bad. But not all guilt is bad. Now, there is a fleshly guilt or a fleshly sorrow when someone's sorry about getting caught or sorry about just the consequences of their actions. And the Bible says that type of sorrow doesn't lead to life. It just leads further into death. But there's a godly sorrow. There's a godly grief produced by the Holy Spirit as he brings conviction on the heart. That guilt leads to life according to the Scriptures. It's the guilt that we feel when we understand that we have offended a holy, just, and righteous God. And in and of itself, that guilt, that guilt, that sorrow is a grace gift from God. It is kindness meant to lead you to repentance. When you hear a, the harsh word that drives you to feel guilty about your sin, that is grace, my friends. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Referring to how difficult a message like this is for hearers to digest, one preacher wrote these words. He said this, Well would it be for the church of Christ if it possessed more plain-speaking ministers like John the Baptist in these latter days. A morbid dislike for strong language, an excessive fear of giving offense, a constant flinching from directness and plain speaking are, unhappily, too much the characteristics of the modern Christian pulpit. He continues later on as he refers to John's mention of hell. He writes this. The minister who dwells much upon it, hell that is, must expect to find himself regarded as coarse, violent, unfeeling, and narrow-minded. Those words were written by J.C. Ryle in 1859. How much more today... Does the sandpaper rub people the wrong way? In 1859, J.C. Ryle says, speaking about repentance and speaking about hell will end up having yourself being called narrow-minded. You narrow-minded, mean, unfeeling person, you. How much more? How much more? 150-something years later, do these words ring true? In a culture like ours, 
we need to also understand how shocking this was to John's hearers. It's not that, it's not that uh, the message changes. It's that all throughout all cultures, whether it be in 1859 or in 2012 or in A.D. 6, 7, whatever this was, people are the same. They're sinners, and they still hate the message of repentance. And so the, the John's hearers were, they were shocked by this as well. You see, Jews practiced a ritual of baptism, but it was for proselytes. It was for Gentiles who were, wanted to become Jews. A Gentile, if he wanted to become a Jew, first would become a God-fearer. That means he, he believed in the one true God, and, and he feared that God. But if he wanted to become a full-fledged member of the Jewish household, the Jewish people... He would have to undergo all the, the rituals of the Jewish law, including circumcision. But then he would also undergo a ritual called baptism, where he would be immersed in water. And that would symbolize his immersion, his cleansing, and his immersion into God's people. And so as John says these things and calls these Jews to be baptized, he was in essence telling them, you are outside of God's people. And this was scandalous. That's why he says in the later half, latter half of verse 8, he says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John is saying the same message that Jesus said and that Paul would say later. Namely, that your ethnic descent from Abraham does not save you nor grant you any assurance that you are a child of God. Or that you're part of his people. We'll see this later when we get to John chapter 8 in this series. But Jesus was having a heated exchange with the Pharisees during that, in that passage of Scripture. And at one point Jesus says this to them. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Being an ethnic descendant of Abraham didn't assure them of anything. You could be a descendant of Abraham physically and still be a child of Satan. Paul would teach the same thing in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3. The true children of Abraham thus are children of God through faith. Those who have repented of their sin and turned to God through Christ alone. So John is calling on them to observe baptism, a sign of repentance, a sign of turning from sin and coming into God's people. It itself accomplishes nothing, but it's a sign. And along with the sign of repentance, he says there should be evidence of repentance. You see, in that same passage in John chapter 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. And so my second point is this. True repentance is followed by new actions. True repentance is followed by new actions. It changes the way we live. It changes our actions. It produces fruit. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The word repent means literally to just turn around, a 180. You're going this way, and now you go this way. So by its very definition, it means you're turning from something, and you're turning to something else. Have you ever been driving down the road, and there's someone in front of you that has their turn signal on? And they never turn. And it bugs you. Or in my case, I'll be the one driving down the road and my turn signal's on and it bugs my wife. Because I'm like any man, my brain just is kind of scattered and I'm thinking about this or this or this. And then she said, would you please turn the turn signal off? Oh, I didn't know. Sorry. All right, so I turn it off. But what 
John is saying is that if you're going to take on the signal or the symbol of repentance and be baptized, then there needs to be an actual action that follows it. If there's not new actions that follow the repentance, it's like a person going down the road with the turn signal on that never actually turns. He says in verse 9, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If there is not true repentance that produces good fruit, there is no assurance of a salvation. God is the fruit inspector, and we should tremble like John's audience surely did when they heard these words, for God's axe will not miss its mark. God will not be fooled. Your actions, your way of living, your fruit will demonstrate whether or not your repentance is real and whether or not you've truly been immersed into God's people. You say, well, this is too harsh. John's message is too harsh. People will say that today. They'll contrast John and Jesus and say, I just want Jesus' stuff. John's stuff is too harsh. That's for another era. Just give me Jesus' words. Well, the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he begins his earthly teaching ministry were these. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those who thought their actions didn't mean anything, Jesus said these words. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It sounds exactly, it is exactly what John was saying. You see, Jesus' message isn't at odds with John. It's not that Jesus is speaking love and John's speaking harshness. Both Jesus and John spoke the same message that you must repent of your sin. They both took out the sandpaper and got rough with it. And so the crowds, when they hear these things, they begin to ask, as we all should, well, what, what do we do then? What, what should we do? And he answered the general public and he said, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. It's not real complicated. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And then some tax collectors. Now, tax collectors were in the category of really bad sinners. I mean, God's people all throughout the ages, all sin is an infinite offense to a holy God. But we like to categorize our sinners, don't we? Tax collectors were the really bad sinners along with prostitutes. And then there was everybody else. And we do the same thing today. You know, your greedy corporate person who's sinning may be about right here. Your gay people are over here. And then you got your gluttons over here. Well, the tax collectors were one of those. They were on the top echelon of bad people. And they asked the same question, teacher. What shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. You see, the tax collectors, what they did, Rome just turned a blind eye to it. They would collect the taxes that Rome needed, but then they would collect more than that. And they would keep, take off the top what they could keep and then give to Rome what was belong, belonged to Rome. And that was the way they got rich. You remember Zacchaeus? He was rich because of these actions. He says, your life should change. Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Zacchaeus is a great example of repentance. His actions follow. Not only did he stop collecting more than he was supposed to do, he went and gave four times back to the people he had defrauded. 
And then the soldiers come. Now these soldiers could have been Jews who had been inscripted into the Roman armies that were present in Palestine. Or they could have been Romans themselves. Um, or maybe they were Jews that were assigned specifically, Jewish soldiers assigned specifically to tax collectors. That's how hated tax collectors were. Sometimes they had to have their own little bodyguards. Regardless, they asked the question, and we, what, what should we do? And he said to them, don't exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, don't take advantage of your position. You are in a position of power and don't bully people with your position. Don't take advantage of that. Be content with who you are, with what you've been given. So what are some observations we can make from these things, these comments? Surely this isn't an exhaustive list, obviously. The sins that we need to repent of are as diverse as the people sitting in this room. But secondly, we see kind of an overall theme here. That these actions flow out of repentance. And there seems to be a theme to these these, uh, actions. It's a life of love, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly. That's what characterizes the life of repentance. Doing love, or, or living lovingly, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly. Now let me stop right here. Because that message right there, do justice, is very, very popular in the church today. Everybody's about justice. Social justice. And that's fine. We should be about social justice. It's exactly what they are told to do. Show mercy, show kindness, live a life of love, live a life of mercy and justice to those around you. But the justice flows out of repentance, not vice versa. You see, we're out there preaching social justice, but we're not calling on people to repent. When you don't call on people to repent first, the social justice just becomes something to make yourself feel better. I feel really good because we help these orphans in Africa. Oh, yes, thank you, Jesus. Oh, what a warm feeling I have in my heart. No, we repent and we fall on our face and say, I am a greedy son of Satan. When I'm acting like the Satan tribe. And so, God, forgive me of my sin. I don't want to hold on to these possessions anymore. And so I'm going to give them freely. I see people in need and my heart is just turned upside down by it. And so I'm going to give to them. That flows out of repentance. If it's the other way around, it becomes self-serving justice. Churches have got to preach repentance first. And let the social justice actions of the people flow out of that. Thirdly, I want us to see here that these actions affect the everyday mundane part of our lives. John tells them to act differently where they're at. He doesn't tell the tax collector, you know, you need to quit your job and come out here. I've got an extra camel hair suit. Let's put that on you. I'm going to find you an extra belt and come out here and preach with me. Now for some, that might have been what needed to happen. But for most of the people there hearing this message of repentance, it was to affect them right where they were in their very lives. Don't quit being a tax collector. Just be a God-glorifying tax collector. Don't quit being a soldier. Be a God-glorifying soldier. That's what repentance does. 
You see, because we like to do some sort of action, some sort of change to make ourselves feel better. And God just says, if, it truly, if you're truly repentant, if your heart has really been turned, then you're just going to do the things you're already doing better. Be a better dad. Be a better husband. Be a better co-worker. By doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly. You see, true repentance hits us where it hurts. It involves a deep introspection into our lives. It involves a deep change of behavior, not merely external demonstrations. It's much easier to put a fish on the back of your car than to ask yourselves whether or not this car is the right way I need to be spending God's money. That's the hard question. The easy thing is to get a fish sticker. And everyone will see how devout I am. The hard question is the things people don't see. When you've got that money and you say, Lord, do I need all these extras? Do I need this stuff? Do I really need to spend my money this way? Lord, convict me. Take your scalpel and dig into my heart and examine me. What are my motives here? Why am I doing this? That's the hard part. That's the Christian life no one sees. You don't stick it on your bumper. And that's what we're called to, for the, for the Word of God to penetrate deep into the parts of our lives that we don't like to talk about. You see, it's much easier to put on a Christian t-shirt with some lame ripoff of a current slogan or logo than it is to stop being a jerk or to stop cheating on your income tax or to stop watching pornography. It's much easier to watch a Christian movie than it is to sacrifice the money that you need in order to keep your cable television. And take that money and start giving for the first time in your life. You see, repentance takes us to places that we don't like to deal with. The fruit of our repentance will change the way we operate our lives and our business and our homes. It doesn't just change the way we think, it changes the way we act. So that a person doesn't just stop thinking greedily, he actually loosens his grip on the money and on the stuff that he possesses. True repentance should result in transformation. Now, if I were to stop right there and say, this is going to be a two-part message, which it's not, sorry. If I were to stop right there and say, this is going to be a two-part message, I would be leaving you in a woefully inadequate place. If John were to stop right here, he'd be leaving you in a woefully inadequate place. Because neither the sign of baptism, nor the actual repentance, nor the new actions, in and of themselves, can do anything to get us out of the Satan tribe and into God's family. Let me say here, in sort of a parenthetical comment, there's two types of extremes in preaching that are both deadly. Number one, we've already sort of hit on this morning a little bit, sort of the, the easy, the smooth preaching. The easy believism that either rejects or simply avoids repentance. And thus avoids the truth of the sinful condition of, the hum, of, human, of people. But then there's also a second type of preaching. It's a harsh legalism. 
that preaches repentance and change and produces guilt, but leaves people thinking that they must somehow fix the problem in their own strength. Okay, I'm just going to start doing things better. I'm going to feel bad about my sin, and so in my own strength, somehow I can make this happen, and it leaves people without any hope whatsoever. These are the people that hear a message like what they've heard so far and leave and go, all right, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to change. I'm going to start tithing. I'm going to go cut my cable bill, and I'm going to start tithing. And then two weeks, three weeks, four weeks down the road, they can't stand not having cable anymore. And so they call the cable company and say, hey, will you reinstall my cable? And the tithing goes away. The paint that they thought had been applied to the heart just peels right off and beads up. So John doesn't leave us there either. You see, both that type of preaching fails. As my son would say, epic fail. All right? Just thought I'd be a little culturally relevant there for a second. It fails woefully. The one is like the doctor who fails to diagnose the cancer because he doesn't want to upset the patient. But the other is like the doctor who diagnoses the cancer and harshly warns the patient without giving them any care. John was not a bad preacher. So his message continues. You see, the Jews were listening to John and they begin to think in their heart and their mind, could this be the Christ? And so John continues. He wants to correct that as he continues his message. And he says this in verse 16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. One was coming. John says that he's not even worthy to do a slave's task for the one who's coming. Slaves are the ones who untied the sandals. This one who's coming is, of course, Jesus, the Messiah. And so my, my third point is this. True repentance points us to Christ alone. John is saying that the Messiah is coming and he's going to immerse you in a greater baptism. A baptism of immersion into the Holy Spirit. A baptism of refining by fire. John knew, as we all should know, that no amount of feeling bad about your sin, no amount of understanding how sinful you are, no amount of turning from your sin, no amount of new actions, no amount of physical water being poured over your body can truly purge anyone of the sins that beset us or cause us to walk in the holiness that God requires. If so, we wouldn't need Christ. Just repent, be baptized, act differently. Come on, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But John knows that's not a sufficient message. The gospel isn't a clean yourself up message and come to God. The gospel is a you are woefully sinful message and you need to turn from your sin to the only one who can clean you up and heal you. The Messiah, the one who's coming. There had to be another baptism. John's mention of being immersed into the Holy Spirit was pointing back to the Old Testament prophecy where God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. No one is saved apart from repenting of his actions and turning to God for salvation, but repentance itself does not save anyone. It has no power. What saves us is the finished work of Jesus Christ applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit. That's what saves the sinner. It's the blood of Christ being painted on that wall. That's what saves the sinner. And those hearts to which that work is applied will indeed be hearts that are broken and hearts that are repentant. 
hearts that turn away from sin and self and hearts that turn to Christ. What a beautiful picture. When we are baptized in water, repenting of our sins, we are at the same time proclaiming that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we are recipients of a greater baptism, a baptism of being immersed into God's Spirit, overwhelmed, overtaken, completely saturated. Mode of baptism, therefore, is important, friends. And fire. What does that mean, fire? Well, for the believer, it's the presence of the Spirit, alive, burning within us, bringing about a fiery purging of sin as we are made holy, as He is holy, and as we are conformed to the image of Christ. But for the non-believer, the fire has a totally different symbolism. It's a different fire. It's not a fire of refining unto holiness, but a fire of judgment. Verse 17. His winnowing fork, this is Jesus' winnowing fork, is in His hand to clear His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into His barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, the Jewish people who were listening and lived in that agricultural society, they would have understood as the, the farmer would take the, his, his uh, winnowing fork and rub it through the wheat like that, the outer shell casing on that wheat would break off and the wind would sort of carry it away as he threw this wheat up into the air and the, the true wheat would fall to the ground and that would be stored into the barn. But then all that shaft that had been blowing around they would sweep that all together, and then they would light it on fire and burn it. That's bad news for the sinner. But hopefully by God's grace, that terrible, frightening bad news will indeed cause sinners to repent and thus embrace the news, the good news of the gospel. You see, the chaff that the farmer swept up would eventually be consumed but the fire that jesus is bringing is an unquenchable fire oh if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in christ alone this verse should scare you to death it is an unquenchable fire. It is popular in our, today, our day to say that hell doesn't really exist. It's just a state of mind. Or that hell is sort of some sort of an event that just sort of annihilates the sinner. That does not square with the words of Jesus or John the Baptist. John says it's an unquenchable, eternal fire. And so sinners are to repent and embrace the good news. You see, true repentance, number four, is essential to the good news. He says in verse 18, it says in verse 18, Luke tells us, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Some in our day would say, this has nothing to do with good news. Some in our day would say that good news needs to be free of exhortations and free of imperatives. But John would beg to differ. We must call on people to repent. We must exhort people to holy living. We are not saying this to try to convince people that they somehow work their way to heaven. We do so 
in order to cause people to see that they need a Savior. And that even after people have been saved, we call one another and we exhort one another to holy living and into a lifestyle of continual repentance and renewal. That's what the Christian walk is all about. Continually repenting before the Lord of our sin and experiencing that renewal. The Christian life not only begins with repentance, it continues with repentance. 1 John 1, 9 was written to believers. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we preach imperatives. We exhort, and that's part of the gospel. We preach and say, strive for holiness. Kill sin. Not that we're trying to convince you that you somehow are doing that in your strength. No, if Christ lives within you, if his spirit's within you, then you will want to kill sin. And I'm going to exhort you to do it. And so he is doing a process of sanctification in your life. And he calls on you. No, he commands you to participate with him in the process. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The author of Hebrews doesn't say, hey, just, just think about the cross, man, and how much Jesus loves you. So, you. so you beat your wife again. That's okay, it's forgiven. Just think about the cross, dude. So you treated your children like trash again. It's okay, it's, it's no big deal. You've already been forgiven, right? No, Paul says, if you're not striving for holiness, you have no assurance that you're a believer. And so that verse about unquenchable fire should scare the tar out of you if you are not living a life of constantly striving for holiness. Do you understand that this morning, Harbins? We are called to fight a fight, to kill the sin in our life. We are not called to sit back and say what the people said to Paul. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? You know what Paul said? And I'll say this in the same language he said. He said, hell no. We will not live that way. We will not live that way. The message of the gospel is a glorious message of good news. But my friends, it continues to be a message as you're a believer that penetrates your heart and reveals the sinful nature that still resides there. Even though it's dead and it has no power over you, my friends, you got to keep fighting it. Because if you're fighting it, if you're not fighting it, there's no evidence that it's actually dead. So we see our sin. We're cut to the heart by God's imperatives. We repent and we turn to Christ continually in our lives that we might walk with him in joy and in fellowship. This is not legalism, friends. This is sanctification, a work of God that we are called to participate in because we know that God is at work within us and that those who are truly his, he will finish that work. And so it's a great and joyful thing. But there is no such thing as a couch potato Christian. It doesn't exist. The Christian who sits on his rear end and doesn't think he has any work to do in his life should fear verse 17 of this passage as much as the atheist walking out there on the street. This isn't popular preaching today. People want to hear about Jesus, but they don't want to hear about repentance. Sadly, we know that. The paint is peeling off the churches of America. 
The paint is peeling off the walls of the churches across America because we have decided this is too harsh. You know what they call this today? Got a whole new phrase for it. It's called hate speech. You can't tell me that what I'm doing is sin, you hate speech monger. You can't tell me that God calls for me to turn away from that lifestyle, you hater. Even pastors. There's a pastor who has a whole video called Haters. Because there's people in this country that dare to call him to account for the way he's leading his church. And say, you know what? You can't be doing these things. And he says, you're just a hater. You hater. It isn't comfortable. Sandpaper doesn't feel good. But it's absolutely necessary. In and of itself, it can't save you nothing. Only the blood of Christ applies. Well, it wasn't popular in John's day either. Herod the Tetrarch. Apparently John had reproved him because Herod was sleeping with his brother's wife, Herodias. How's that for a name? Herodias. So he's sleeping with Herodias, his brother's wife, and John gets on to him about it. Reproves him about it. And other sins that he had been committing. And Herod had that hate speech filled bigot locked up in prison. I want to hear that. Don't tell me that what I'm doing in my own private life is sin. Lock him up. So Luke ends where he began with the leaders in the dark, the darkness that was reigning in the political establishments of those days. But the light of men was dawning. When I think of John, I think of him as a, on a long line of succession. There's all these prophets, and they're kind of they're lined up going up a mountain. And one prophet's handing off the message to the next prophet. And there's John standing at the top of the mountain. And on the other side of the mountain is the dawning of the new covenant. And here comes the king. And now John's standing there in the line of the Old Testament prophets, yelling out to everyone, The king is coming! Make way for the king! And so we don't get distressed. Yes, I've had plenty of interactions this week. Thank you, Chick-fil-A. With different people, with some different opinions about what's going on regarding some cultural issues in our world today. And I have been called a hater. I have been attacked because I don't respect someone's feelings. Hey, that can either get you down or you can realize in the middle of the darkness that we live in today, the king is still on his way. He's already come once and finished the job. Now he comes back and he's bringing his winnowing fork this time. This time he's bringing the fork. He's coming with a crown of victory on his head. A joyful sight for those who are in him. A sight of dread and fear for those who are not. Let's pray. Before I pray with your heads bowed and eyes closed, let me just say this. This morning we are all to respond. Every message from God's word we should be responding to. 
So I pray that this morning that in your seats where you're at, that you would let God, that you submit yourself to God, surrender yourself to God to do a work in your heart. Let him dig down deep and show you the areas of your life that you need to repent of. And then respond in your offerings, respond in your prayer requests. If you need to just come up here to the steps and spend some time in prayer, whatever it might be, if you need to talk about the gospel, I'm going to be in the front row here. Just come get me. Let's go talk. Let's talk about the, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is the only way that sins can be forgiven. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, the old Sunday school pictures of you holding the nice little lamb sitting by the river are accurate. You are a loving and tender shepherd. But unfortunately, in not many of our Sunday school curriculums did we ever have a picture of you standing with your winnowing fork. And so we have fed American evangelicalism with a diet of smooth words and avoided the rough words. Forgive us of our sin. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to repent. Repentance in and of itself is a gracious gift from you. Oh, Jesus, point out the sin in my life. Point out the sin in my heart. Lord, keep me from being a hypocrite who stands up here and says these words and then goes out and does not apply them to himself. So God, I pray, Lord, that you do a work in our hearts. Restore us, cleanse us, make us people who are like you, holy, as our Heavenly Father is holy. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.